It was 1998. There were five obese men together in an office. Not a pretty picture. I would guess the average weight was around 320. And there I sat, and I was on the lower end of the 320, but I was one of those, those obese men. And we were sitting around together, and we said, if we don't do something, they're going to be- bury us in a piano crate. We need to get some exercise. We need to do something. And, and, and chances are you shouldn't listen to the advice of five obese men when you're thinking about exercise, but that's all that was in the room. And so we started, and one of them said, we ought to run a marathon. Well, seemed like a decent idea. I don't think any of us knew how far a marathon was. I'm not sure if, if you'd seen any of us running, you'd have probably called the police because someone had a gun to our head. But let's run a marathon. And by the way, if you know nothing about marathons, which marathons do you think about? The Boston and the New York. So we looked up the Boston Marathon and we saw that you had to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Well, I think one of them literally said, fat chance we're running two of these things. And so then the New York Marathon. Well, the New York City Marathon, and I've told a couple of this story, the New York City Marathon is a reverse lottery. And the way that they take the elite runners, which none of us would have qualified in that category, and then you do a reverse lottery. And so um, they, we all decided we'd, do, we'd all sign up. And so we filled out the paperwork. We, we put the money in it. We wrote up our checks, and we sent off the, our application to run the New York City Marathon that November 1st. And out of the five obese men in the room, only one person was selected in the reverse lottery to run in the marathon. So in June of that year, I got a letter that said, congratulations, you've been chosen to run in the New York City Marathon. Now, um, I, I, I had not run anywhere prior to that. So uh, a matter of, I remember riding on the, on the shuttle bus to Stanton Island. You go through all five boroughs when you when you run through the, 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 the marathon. And, and I remember the guy sitting next to me and, and he was wearing his real short plastic shorts and he had 0% body fat. And, and, and there I was in my basketball shorts and kind of, and he said, so what's your best time? And I, and I said, well, I really don't have a best time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, they were all, you know, they were all kind of just these elite runners and there I was. Um, but none of them said, hey, you don't belong here, Chubby. Uh, there was a, there's a camaraderie in the room. And, and so we get to Staten Island. I realized that they put me based on my number because on your application, you say how fast you think you're going to run it. And since I put a calendar down instead of a time, they, they put me pretty far back in the back. And I was asking somebody, I said, well, where's the starting spot? And they said, oh, it's on the other side of the bridge. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not starting way back here just to, you know. So I started covering my number and working my way up the Staten Island Bridge. And excuse me, excuse me, oh, excuse me. And kind of crossing, you know, well, now the problem with that is the closer you got to the front, the better the runners were. And the less I should have been there. And so I moved my way pretty, you know, pretty good distance up toward the beginning. And then the race began. And it was an amazing race. But one of the most amazing things about it was all the people. 
They say that that race has the most spectators of any athletic event in the world because it's a Sunday morning and people come out. When you're running through Harlem, the, 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 the black churches in Harlem will open their doors and their choirs will come out on the side of the street and they'll be singing, their, their, they'll, they'll be singing for you as you run by. Little kids, since Halloween was the night before, this was November 1st, little kids would be standing there with their candy to hand you candy, I thought. Candy and running? What a good deal. And so I, was, I may have been the only person picking up candy during the run. And it was just an but it was amazing. Nobody said, hey, you don't belong here. I remember I did okay until I realized, until I stopped for a little bit to take a break. And then I crashed. And so with about seven miles left, I was just, I was done. And I remember saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a half mile and I'll walk a half mile. And then then it was like, I'll run this block and then I'll walk the next block. And then I got to the point where I said, if I stop running, I won't start again. So I'm just, no matter how slow it is, I will just stumble to the end of this thing. And uh, by that time, needless to say, those fast runners that I started with were long gone. Um, I was being passed by a guy in a gorilla suit. Um, <laughs> there was a guy juggling that, that passed me. Uh, there's, there's a great humiliating moment. But... Um, but I remember I was coming down, we were going through in Manhattan, and I heard someone yell, um, 6447, don't give up. Um, and then somebody who was running next to me, um, I guess he thought, this man will probably die before the end of this race, I should say something. And he, he said, hey, we're almost there, don't give up. And this... And the energy that started to come and flow from, from people around me, people watching, people saying, you need water? You need some water? I must have looked pretty bad. Um, nobody said, you shouldn't have been here to begin with. You, you have no business running the race. Everybody instead encouraged me. There's something about someone alongside you while you're doing something, while you're enduring something, to realize you're not alone and to realize the task that you've been given is something that's been done before. Well, the passage we're going to look at together this morning is really born from all the great work the kids did this week. Now, all the kids this week, they looked at Hebrews 11. Now, you guys know the book of Hebrews is very theologically thick. And so book chapters 1 through 10 are very theologically thick that are essentially saying, uh, talking about the Jewish traditions and showing how they really ultimately point to Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Very theologically thick. And then chapters 10 till the end of Hebrews is more application and encourage and, and kind of how to live out this theology that he's just given us. Well, Chapter 11 in Hebrews, the way he chooses to encourage is he starts going through what these kids did this week, the heroes of the faith, and he starts listing people. Just a litany of people that have gone before you. A litany of, of the heroes of the faith. And what you notice when you see them, none of them are perfect, and most of them are pretty ordinary. And what made them special was that they had faith, not that they were that 
extraordinary in and of themselves. And so the chapter 11 is what the kids worked on all week long. Just reminding them, heroes of the faith, you're not alone. Uh, there's, people, there, there, there's, a, there's people that have gone before you. And that's, that's, that's great work. But then chapter 12 begins with the verse we're going to look at. And so it starts by saying this. I'm going to look in chapter 12 of, book, of the book of Hebrews, uh, verses 1 and 2. And here's what it says. Therefore, now the therefore, what does that refer back to? It refers, therefore, I've told you all about all these heroes of the faith. Now that you've heard about the heroes of the faith, therefore, what's the application? Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance, the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. God bless the reading of his holy word. Well, before we talk about his word, and before we talk about God, let's together as a church talk to him. Let's pray together. Father, what does it mean that there's a great cloud of witnesses. Is there somehow an unseen world, even in this room, that, that is full to the brim of your, of, your, of your children, of you, your spirit? Oh, Father, give us eyes to see. Father, you know every person in this room you know the people that are struggling with doubt, worry. You know the people that are worried about their health. You know the people that are worried about their kids. Father, you know every person here. So would you meet us here this morning? Would you change us because we, we stopped for a moment and looked at your word? Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use our time together to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use our time to comfort them? And for all of us, use it to equip us for your great purposes and your glory. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You are faithful to the image that you carry of yourself. Say that again. You're faithful to whatever image you carry of yourself inside. When you mess up and you go, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I did that. That's a... That's an image you carry of yourself. You're faithful to whatever the most true image that you believe about you is. The Bible uses images throughout the New and Old Testament to tell us about how we should see ourselves, how we should see God, and how God sees us. And the way you answer those three questions, how you believe you see, how you see yourself, how you believe God sees you and how you see God, the way you answer those three questions will determine so much of how you live your life. And so God goes to a lot of trouble in his scriptures to give us re re renewed imagery, images that say, here's what it's like to walk with me. Here's what it's like to be my child. Here's what it's like to be... So he uses metaphors and imagery of adoption. He uses... 
uh, that you're a soldier. He says, uh, Paul tells Timothy that he's like a farmer. And there's an image used in this passage that is supposed to be instructive to us as we live out our Christian life. And that's the image of an athlete. And he's using the image of an athlete in this, in this passage that's running a race because it tells us something about what it means to live the Christian life, what it's like. You see, the Christian life is not passive. It's not a passive life. It's an active life. It's a, it's a life that's moving in a direction. It's teleological, if you will. It's moving in a direction. And because of that, uh, the metaphor he uses here to say, okay, here's what it's like to be a Christian. It's like an athlete running a race. And so be aware of the images that you carry. Allow God to begin to change the images that you carry about yourself, about him, and the way you believe he sees you. Because those images are some of the things he is trying to change in the way that you see your Christian walk in scripture. And this is one of those places where God is using an image, of a picture of an athlete. And so even if you're not an athlete, like obviously I'm an elite athlete and you can tell just by, okay, okay, that, that wasn't even funny enough to where you even laughed. The, 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 the imagery can be helpful even if that's not how you see yourself uh, because there's a, there's a way in which God's calling you a runner in a race. And so how should, how should we actively run this race that God's invited us to? Well, I think we're given many, many things in this passage that will help us. So first, let's read the beginning and let's see what we have, what he has for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. What is that? that that's imagery of, of a great stadium. It's the imagery of, of, a, of an idea that, you, that you're, not, you're not living the, this, this Christian life alone, that there's a great cloud of witnesses that are watching you come to, to bat that you're not stepping up to the plate in a, in a lonely, dingy place. Because sometimes when you become a Christian and you start to try to think through the Christian life, you think, I'm all alone in this. Am I an idiot? Nobody agrees with this. Nobody believes. I'm, I'm the only kid in my school who thinks this is, makes sense. I mean, all the rest of my friends, they're, they're partying or they're doing this. or all, all the Gosh, I look at the people I graduated from high school with or college with and see how much more they have than me. I think, am I being a fool? God knows you'll feel that sometimes. God knows there'll be times where you'll question. So he wants to remind you at the beginning of this metaphor of that you're an athlete running a race. He wants to say, when you go to the plate, there's a cloud of witnesses. And that cloud of witnesses, I want you to think about it in two ways. And, and by the way, since the kids use the metaphor of baseball, We'll use that as well. Um, and so we'll talk about running the bases. That's extra biblical. That's not what the Bible is saying here. It's talking about running a race. But just stay with me. These kids went to a lot of trouble. And, you know, so, so we're running the bases. So you're at home plate, and you're walking out, and you're wondering, 
know, do I have what it takes? And this passage says, there's a great cloud of witnesses. You're not alone. There's two things I want you to note about that. First, usually that's preached with the idea that people aren't paying attention to you. And it's kind of about you. It's like, you're, you know, you're not alone and people are paying attention to you as you go up to the plate. There may be some of that in this passage. And sometimes I've heard it preached like, you better not mess up because they're watching you. And there may be a little of that in this passage, but this passage is not really, hey, be encouraged because everybody's watching you. It's really, a, it's really pointing to the therefore points to the heroes of the faith. What really is supposed to happen in this is as I come to the plate and I look at the witnesses watching me and cheering me on, I realize there are people that have gone ahead of me. It's people that have, have understood, they'll understand the life that I'm living. I feel discouraged. Oh, there's Abraham up there. Abraham waited 20 years for God to give him what he said he was going to give him and wondered, oh, is there any hope in this? I know what it's like to feel hopeless. So does that faithful man there who's, who's cheering me on. See, the great cloud of witnesses, the issue in that is not God's, that everybody's paying attention to you. The issue is you should pay attention to who's up there watching you now. Because if you pay attention to who's in that great cloud of witnesses, might, for some of you, it might be your, 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 your faithful grandparent who prayed for you. For some of you, it might be a boss that saw something in you and said, I want him to know Jesus. For some of you, it might, but there will be someone who you'll catch an eye that knows what you've experienced. There'll be somebody who struggled with infertility and you'll see them. They've been faithful. There'll be somebody who struggled with finances and, and being able to keep a job and you'll see them and you'll see, well, they, they were faithful. I, I can see their eyes. See, that great cloud of witnesses says you're not alone in this. You're not alone when you go up to the bath. They're people that have gone before you and that should encourage you because they are paying attention and cheering you on they're not against you. Nobody that day I was running said, hey, Chubby, you don't belong in a marathon. They said, hey, keep going. You can do this. You have almost made it. Just a few more miles to go. <laughs> it's not a passive life that God's invited us to live. It's not a, it, God's invited us to live a life uh, of a race. You're not alone. And people have run it before you. And you don't do it under your power, but his power anyway, which we'll get to as we round third and look at what we're supposed to be focusing at as we run. But when you come to the home plate and you put that bat on your shoulder and you say, do I have what it takes? And the answer is you really don't. But he does. And the people that are watching you did. And they're calling you and saying, you got this. And then you swing for the fence. Well, you just start heading toward first. I don't know if you've been watching baseball much lately. I'm not a big baseball watcher, except the Vols were so good this year. I started watching them the last couple of weeks before they messed up. I think me watching them kind of messed them up. I'm just saying. Um, which, by the way, can I take just a quick side jot, tittle, movement, step? That was pretty slick, wasn't it? Um, because they talked about heroes of the faith. We had some heroes here this week. The kids were heroes, but the volunteers were incredible. And so let's just, and there was also, what you might not know, is there were two camps going on here this week. There was the 
the music camp, but there was also an ACE camp for, for, uh, for families with, dis- with, with uh, non-typical children. And they were meeting this week, and they did a great job. So if you could, if you were a volunteer with either one of those camps this week, would you mind just standing up real quick? Thank you. Thank you. Because part of what it means to have a cloud of witnesses go ahead of you would be to have people like that that you go, oh, it's possible to live more sacrificially than I do. It's possible to actually care about people because look, they've, they're ahead of me on the path and they've done that. So I, I thank you for that. By the way, as long as we're talking about heroes of the faith, and I'm on a side note anyway, uh, let me just mention fathers. For some people, Father's Day is a hard day. Some of your fathers have been great. But since God calls us to honor our mothers and fathers no matter what, a lot of you have had dishonorable fathers or fathers who didn't show up. How do you deal with that? I would just want to tell you that today, be aware that everyone in this room who knows Jesus can celebrate Fathering Day because you have been fathered by a good father, even if your earthly father wasn't. And if your earthly father was good, celebrate him, honor him. Chances are he was somewhere between good and just ordinary, but I'd celebrate him anyway. And then, um, but if he, it was a difficult, if you were the guy that said, I hate Father's Day because of the experience you had in your family, I understand that. Um, you do have a good father, though. And you can't celebrate Fathering Day because it's God the Father is a faithful, good father. Just a just a reminder. So if you're a father or have ever been involved in fathering someone for the glory of God, you're a hero this day too, and we'd celebrate you. So with that, now, meanwhile, back at first base. So uh, what I noticed when I watched the Vols play is after they hit the ball, they had, they, they had these elbow and shin guards on. And the first thing they would do once, they, once they, they got on base is they would take off the shin guard and throw it away, the elbow guard, and they'd go to base. And that's because that was a hindrance to them being able to run. Now, the text says the same thing. There's, matter of fact, it talks about two types of hindrances. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight or every encumbrance and sin that clings so closely. So there's two things that it's talking about that kind of slow you down. So on the way to first base, you need to get rid of the things that, the weights that hinder you. Now, those, at least implied in the passage, those aren't sins. Those are maybe good things that you've become too important to you, too heavy to you. Something that has become so much that it's keeping you from being able to run. And so, what are your hindrances? Again, the hindrances aren't usually, I think the way most theologians see this passage, the sin is the next thing it talks about, but the first thing are just things that are probably godly, or at least they're okay, but they're not necessary, and sometimes they can become too important. I was talking to a person this last week who told me that he gave up his video games. Um, oh, I don't think there's anything sinful about playing a video game. I mean, and that's really not my generation. I'm still trying to use my, I'm trying to figure out how to use my cell phone. But, um, 
And there's nothing, I don't think there's anything sinful about playing a video game, but in this kid's life, he kind of said, it became two or three hours a day. And, and it just didn't get me anywhere. It was, it's not that it was wrong to play it from time to time, it's just that it became a hindrance to doing anything that mattered. And I'd find myself spending hours and hours at a task that didn't matter. Nothing wrong with Facebook. Well, that's probably not a true statement, but... Um, and if you get on Facebook and send out a posty thing on there, that's fine. But somehow if you spent four or five hours a day or, or just sat and couldn't live with boredom and see what God might want for you to think about, instead you quickly just grabbed your phone and went to your Facebook, maybe that's a hindrance that you need to take off. Told, somebody told me that they watch, had a person tell me they, they watch about five and a half hours of TV a day. And I said, what, what shows do you like? He said, well, it doesn't really matter. It just, it's just relief. Maybe that's a hindrance. So think for just a minute about what's your hindrance. What is it that you hold on to? Maybe, the, maybe to numb you, maybe to give you relief, maybe because you're not willing to live in the honest struggle and sorrow of the race. But what are your hindrances? Again, these aren't sins necessarily. I mean, some of them can be recreation. And recreation, the, the word recreation means, uh, it comes from the same idea to recreate. There's a good thing. But is there a time where sometimes those things can become hindrances to the run? So we're rounded, home, we're rounded first plate. We touch first base, we're... We're circling to second. And then we see another hindrance to the run, and that's sin that clings so closely to us. There's a type of sin we don't talk about much. I'm making some of you nervous with the way I'm holding the bat. I just want you to know, I, I see the look. Like, I think he might hit one of us. I, I, um, there's a type of sin that we don't talk about that much. It's the kind of sin that, that we've habitually been involved in so long, we, it gets... It gets kind of a part of our, our, our personality a little bit. It, it might be our self-righteousness. It might be our pride. It might be our anger. It might be, it, it's something that often just gets, the way that this says it, it is, is intertwined in us and, and, and clings close to us. And it ultimately keeps you from being able to run the race. I mean, have you ever seen somebody with too much stuff to be able to run or to do something? You know, they'll, 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 they'll be carrying everything. They'll, they'll have a pack that, you know, sometimes if you, you'll see somebody, uh, you know, that if you've ever seen me go on a trip, I always overpack. And you want to go, how long are you going to be gone? Uh, do you really think you need seven suitcases for one night over? You know, I mean, there's, there's a way in which sometimes we, there's an invitation in this passage to travel light. Because there's a race ahead of us. And travel light, take away the things that, the hindrances but also face the sin that clings to you and keeps you from being able to run. It could be something that would easily be called sin, like you know, pornography or something like that, but it might just be your self-righteousness or your anger. 
or the way that you always play the victim or the way that you have to be admired by everybody. I'll quit telling you mine. You can fill in your own list. As you touch second base, there's a crowd cheering with people that have been there before, have taken off the hindrances of the things that just really don't matter. And I've faced my sin, and I've, and I've, I've left that at second base, and I'm rounding toward third. What's the text teach me next? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, the word race there, in some places in the Bible, translated as battle. It comes from the Greek word ergon. Um, I, I probably said that wrong. I dated a Greek girl once, but I don't speak Greek very well. Um, and the same word that we get the word agony from comes from this same root word. Um, it's the idea, this is that the race that you're invited to, to run, that God is inviting us to run here, is not a a, a, a two-yard sprint. It's a, it's, a, it's a race that will require endurance. Like you said the word agony comes from that same idea of this word. It's a battle. It's a, it's a race that requires endurance. Now, I want to tell you the truth is life is a battle and a race. And you either run a race with Jesus that matters or you run a race with no real purpose anyway. Why would you waste a life if it's going to be a race anyway that's going to require endurance? Why would you do it in a way that doesn't echo into eternity? So this passage says that I'm going to run a race of endurance. Of the race, listen to this phrase, the race set before me. You know what? I don't like the race set before me. I'd like a different race. I'd like the race of a multimillionaire that had to decide how to give their money to Jesus better. There'd be a race I'd like to run. run. I'd like a race where um, everybody turned out okay and nobody was sick. Um, there are people that have that race. I'd like the race where you're really super good looking and great athletic. There are people that have that race to run. You see, if you're going to round second, head to third, and, and go home and be where we belong, you have to learn to love the race God set before you. There's a race set before you. Your struggles, your, your situation, your children, your spouse, your family of origin, your life, your boss, your church, all those are parts of the race set before you. And so after I've taken care of the, after I realize the encouragement that I'm not alone in this battle, in, in, in this race, and after I've, 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 I've taken away the hindrances that keep me from running, and I face the sin that entangles me and slows me down, as I'm passing second, heading to third, there's an invitation to say, run the race that's before you. Quit comparing yourself to everybody else. Quit basing your life on, on, on why you wish you had this instead of this. And learn to love the story God's telling with your life. 
Because ultimately, God's telling his story through your life. And so there's going to be struggle, and there's going to be betrayal, and there's going to be loneliness, and there's going to be brokenness, because there's that in his story. And each of us tell a unique story and also a very familiar story, because that's how God writes the race. So as you head toward third, run the race that God set before you to run. Lastly, as you head, as you cross third and head home, because someday we'll be home. Someday it'll all make sense. See, God didn't promise an easy life. He promised a purposeful life. And as you head around third and start heading toward home, what will help you endure and make it through the race? Well, that's right here in the text. Verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, most important thing to get you through this race, this race of endurance, this race that has agony in it, this race that requires you to, to let go of some of the things you've held on to, this race of purpose, the most important thing you and I can do to get us home is focus on Jesus. Not politics. Not the economy, not how loud your neighbor is. Oh, you can talk about those things. But your focus, if you're going to get home, your focus, if you're going to make it around the bases, has to be Jesus. Because he is the, the, found, the founder. Listen to the, listen to the text. Jesus is the He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Boy, we could do a whole sermon on the idea that when he said, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy. For the laughter on the other side, he endured the cross. I want to live my life in a way, to be honest with you, I want to live my life in a way that if Jesus came back, I'd be disappointed because I want everything to be working. And that is contrary to what this teaches. This teaches I'm to live my life with my eyes focused on Jesus because he is my hope, not my circumstances. And if my eyes are focused on him, as I round those bases, I'll live a life of purpose. I'll live a life that reflects his glory. And that is the race you and I are invited to live together. Well, church, our time's almost done. We could spend a lot of time talking about what it means to focus on Jesus. I'm gonna just trust that you'll spend some time this week meditating and thinking about what it means to focus on Jesus as you run this race. And remember, you can either run a race, focus on yourself, and living for self, 
See how far that gets you. Where you live your life focused on him and living for him.